This is episode number 279, The Tao of Sport with Olympic gold medalist Duff Gibson. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Number one is doing it for the love of it. The mindset is just give me the chance and I'm going to show you my best as opposed to I hope I don't screw this up. So that's a mindset thing. The days have been good for us lately. We are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up visiting my family for the holidays. And things have felt a little bit dicey with the new variant and the travel restrictions that have been put in place in Canada. But we got out of the country before all of that happened. So it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out. But nonetheless, we are enjoying the sunshine in Squamish, where we live in British Columbia. There is not any or a lot of sunshine or warmth in the winter. So we're really enjoying the warmth. And this is one of the nicer weather years that we've had here. And it's just nice to have alone time with Matt so that we can go do adventures together. Whereas normally we're trading off and my parents are the best grandparents ever. And Bradley is just having the best time. I hope you are having fun this holiday season. And even if you're struggling this holiday season, I'm thinking about you. And I hope that things start looking up soon. Something really fascinating about behavior change is the power of fresh starts. So the start of a new week, the start of a new year, the start even of a new year from when your birthday is. And a lot of us are looking for ways to optimize our health and performance. And the new year is a great way to create new habits. And what better way to analyze where you're at than checking out Inside Tracker? Inside Tracker is an incredible company where you go and you get your blood taken or tested and someone can even come to your house and do that for you. And they look at over 35 biomarkers to give you an idea of where your health is at. And you can have different goals. Your goals could be things like heart health or brain health, or you could have performance oriented goals. And the reference ranges on these biomarkers are adjusted so that you can use lifestyle and diet to improve them. And what better way to take control of your health than using Inside Tracker and getting research-backed recommendations on how to improve in all of these areas. I've been trusting and using Inside Tracker since 2017. So if you want to check them out, go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all tests and start the new year off looking for some ways to improve your health and performance. And then, hey, maybe you check it again in the summer and see how it's all working for you. Go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to take advantage of 25% off and get yourself the gift that keeps on giving. So let's talk about today's podcast guest, Duff Gibson. Imagine rocketing head and face first down a frozen track at around 80 miles per hour or so with the rapidly moving ground just inches from your face. It's pretty hard to imagine. Well, that sport is called skeleton and Duff Gibson won a gold medal in the 2006 Winter Olympics for being the best. Not only that, but he is the oldest gold medalist in history in the Winter Olympic Games, winning gold at age 39 after decades of finding his niche in sport. Dufton starred in skeleton and spent a lot of time finding high degrees of success in other winter sports, but it wasn't enough to help him realize his Olympic dream that he had since childhood. Duff knew when to walk away and try new sports and to help him achieve his ultimate goal, winning Olympic gold. As an athlete, Duff was a provincial champion speed skater, a national champion and national team member in bobsleigh, 
and then a world and Olympic gold medalist in the sport of skeleton. As a coach, he led six different athletes to podium finishes at a world level and competing against, working with, and learning from numerous world-leading athletes and coaches has provided Duff a breadth of depth and knowledge of experience that few others have had. Duff is very passionate about the mental side of sport. That's why we got along so well. And he wrote the book, The Tao of Sport, chronicling his story along with many other high-achieving athletes and Olympians with the mental side of sport interweaved into the narrative. He regularly works with younger multi-sport athletes and is now based in Calgary. If you like things like mindset, motivation, productivity, psychology, make sure you're signed up to my free weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday. You can get that at sonyaloney.com slash newsletter, where I send you the podcast episode of the week, a question of the week to ponder, and a research article that I write every single week covering a bunch of different topics to help you be better every day, just like what this podcast is about. So go to sonyaloney.com slash newsletter and join us over there if you enjoy email. Now, Let's talk about a few things that you're going to learn in today's episode. We talked about how Duff knew when to switch sports because knowing when to stop is quite a challenging thing, especially if you're already realizing high level of success. We talked about using positivity in sports. I asked him what is skeleton because I'm sure there's people that have never even heard of his sport as it's a winter sport. We talked about managing fear in his sport and how to deal with pressure because, man, when you're just hurtling down and your run is about a minute long and there are so many little things that could happen, there is a lot of pressure and things that could go wrong, but also things that could go right. And tied into that, we talked about how to use visualization in sport. Visualization in sport is something that we talk a lot about in the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, which is my online course about mental skills training for athletes. But visualization is also something that we can use just in our daily lives and what our goals are, what goals we're chasing. But specifically, we talked about how he uses it in his sport and how skeleton is has a lot of visualization elements involved in it. We also talked about how to be confident if you don't know the path, because a lot of us have an idea of where we want to go, but really the path unfolds as we start moving and you don't always know what that's going to look like. And I can definitely attest to that in my life and seeing that over and over that if I just keep going, the path will reveal itself gives me confidence and it helps me be a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty. And that doesn't mean that I enjoy the discomfort of uncertainty, but it helps me feel like things are going to work out and that I'm in control a little bit more than it feels. So let's get into today's great podcast episode with Duff Gibson. And I hope you have an amazing holiday. And I am thinking of all of you. I'm so grateful for you. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Duff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sonia. I've been listening to a bunch of episodes in the last couple of weeks, and you have an interesting podcast that touches on many different topics. Really interested and very happy to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks. I think a lot of the things that you are passionate and have a lot of knowledge about really fit the show well and fit my interests. So there's actually a personal and selfish desire to talk to you on the show too. <laughs> great, great. Thank you. Yeah. So first, um, so you have this great book that you wrote called The Tao of Sport. And I want to get into the book kind of in the second part of the podcast. But the first part, I think your your personal story is really fascinating and really inspiring for a lot of people. So like, this is a really broad question and then we're going to get narrow, but how did you get into sport? Well, I guess I would say both my parents were phys ed teachers. That's part of it. My dad represented Canada in judo in the 60s, in the early 60s, before I was born. 
it's been a sort of a family obsession. I, I, I say I get probably a lot of that interest from my parents, uh, from my dad, maybe more than my mom. But uh, there was a specific moment, actually, when I watched the Montreal Olympics just before my 10th birthday. And I, for whatever reason, it was magic for me. And I became obsessed with it. And I would say I'm still, to a certain extent, obsessed with the Olympics in particular. And it doesn't matter winter. It doesn't matter summer. There's something about it that's, there are moments that are just so beautiful in watching someone who, in essence, toils in obscurity for that one moment, that one shot. And as the years have gone by, quite frankly, and I've seen inside the Olympic movement and I've seen behind the scenes, what has you know brought a tear to my eye is very often not not first place it's the person who had no business making the top 10 do you know what i mean people who greatly exceed what what they maybe had even thought about their own potential but that was that was the moment for me just before my 10th birthday and from that point forward i thought to myself i'm going to be involved i'm going to represent my country and just to get there was the dream for 90% of it until I did that. And then the dream was, you know, I had a, an awakening that that wasn't enough. It was, it was not what I thought it was going to be. I need to push that much harder to get a medal and, and actually contribute to the medal count. I suppose that's everybody's dream, but it was, I didn't realize how much of a part of that dream it was for me until I got there and didn't win a medal or didn't meet my expectations. But that's a part of it too. And that was really the starting point was just seeing the Olympics on TV and then trying so many different sports to get there. And five times I tell people I had five sports beginning with wrestling in high school where I thought, this is it. This is the sport that I'm going to train and train and train. And I'm going to go to the Olympics in wrestling. And then at the end of high school, I knew that wasn't going to happen. So I switched to the next, to the next, to the next and eventually found skeleton. How did you know that it wasn't going to happen for those sports that you tried and then decided to switch? Well, that's really the nature of chapter two in the book. I think it's chapter two, the nature versus nurture. And we are all suited for some things and not suited for others. And I, I knew having put five years in high school, I, I was a wrestler. And after five years, we have had grade 13 grade nine to grade 13. That was high school in Ontario when I went through. They don't have grade 13 anymore. But after five years of wrestling, I knew that I, there was still a level of competitor that was a level above me who could outclass me. And so I thought, okay, I'll move on to the next one. And each time there was some kind of impediment. There was some kind of a gap. Speed skating was sport number three, and I was ranked in the top 10 in Canada. And I remember once setting a personal best on the same day that Dan Jansen broke the world record. And then by the end of that day, I was still further away from the world record and further away from representing my country at the Olympics. And, you know, after the fact, looking back, I realized that you are suited for some things and you are not suited for other things. And, and that in very basic terms, you know, you can, you can be, I don't know if you've read the sports gene by, but oh, what's his name? David Epstein. He, you've had him on the podcast, have you not? Yeah, yeah. I had him on uh, yeah. to talk about range. Yeah. Range. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. He's one of my favorite authors. But in the in the sports gene, he goes into huge detail as to uh, very specific things like length of tendons and all the all these, you know, that your ankle is 
a lever and a lever can be set up to move huge weights or to be very springy and be very quick. And our bodies are full of levers and we are fast twitch or slow twitch or, you know, we're 210 or we're 125. And that's you're suited for some things and not suited for others. And I found that because of I think largely because I had a multi-sport upbringing, I was very sort of jack of all tradesy. I would be reasonably successful in some things, but ultimately not quite to the level. So I moved on to the next and moved on to the next. And it, it worked out very well because that whole process taught me so much about myself and what was the efficient way of me training me. And ultimately I put all those lessons to use at the end moment. But I see, you know, to your question, I see people who really, you know, they're never going to get there and they refuse to give up because there's this, you know, belief you must never, never give up. And that's fair enough. I respect people who never give up, but are not in the running because of a genetic predisposition. The reality is that you could train, you know, as a pro mountain biker, you could train as a sprinter forever and you may or may not ever get there. Or Michael Phelps is what David Epstein uses as a, as this great example, who is literally constructed like a fish and you could train your entire life and you might never be in that category because of who your mom and dad were and what, what the, the mix of the gene pool when you were born. And so I was lucky enough that I kept trying until I found something that didn't penalize me for what I wasn't good at and required what I was good at. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of intuition to know the difference because I don't think that it's just black and white. And I don't think that's what you're saying, but there's definitely some nuance in there and it's hard to know when you should move on. And also, like you said, it kind of depends on what your goal is. Like if you just love the sport and you want to do it because you love the sport, but your goal isn't to win a gold medal in the Olympics then maybe you can do it at a higher professional level, even without being the number one person in the world at that sport. But there's also like your book is also about the mental side of sport. And there is this like innate, I hate the word talent. <laughs> it's just one of my things. I, I, but there is like an innate genetic ability that some people have over others, like a basketball player who's taller is, you know, and has trained the same or worked the same probably is going to do a little bit better than one. That's a little bit shorter. In most cases, there's just like, Sometimes that happens, but yeah, like I'm, I'm losing my way here, but I do think that there is a mental side of performance where you could be the most quote talented person in the world. But if you don't have that mental side, like you're not going to be able to be number one. Yeah. And I, what I found interesting just recently is someone asked me to give a friend of mine ran a baseball camp for pitchers, specifically for pitchers. And he had the different age categories. And he said, could you come in and do a little intro to the mental aspects of sport? And the oldest age group was a U18. And they hadn't even, I said, you know, I gave a little speech and talked about positivity and what your mentality would be going up against the best pitcher in the league. And is the mentality, oh, I'm going to, I hope I don't look stupid here. Or is the mentality, I dare this guy to throw one down the middle and I'm going to show him how I'm going to show everybody how good I am. You know, those are two completely different things. And everyone agreed that your likelihood of success would be much better if you had the second mentality. But then I said, have you ever thought of that? Or have you ever even had a coach who brought that up? And it was crickets. 
And my, my experience is that even at an Olympic level, people sometimes don't even think about this sort of thing for the first time until it becomes relevant, until you're facing that challenge. You don't, it's a very uncommon thing to have this kind of a conversation with a, a young athlete, which is, I look back on my life and a lot of my success is based on the fact that my parents and all the parents on my block, frankly, kicked all the kids outside and we played hockey and baseball and whatever it was for hours and hours and hours for no external reward. So sport has always been for me about the love of it. And so it was never confused with what are you going to get from it? What, you know, we dreamt of playing in the NHL and hoisting the Stanley Cup every game we played was we imagined it was overtime in game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, but it was never for, there was never a prize. It was always for the joy of doing it. And that set me up so well, but it's very, the mental side I think is so, now I'm on my soapbox here. The mental side is so critical. It's if you're going to fail at the highest level, it's just as likely that it'll be because of a you know, whatever, I don't even like to use the word mental toughness because what does that mean? That's such a broad definition. And some people think of it as, as being something completely different than what I think of it as. But you're very likely to fail or not perform up to your expectations or your potential because of the mental aspects rather than the physical aspects. So it's very important to your point. Yeah, training optimism and focus in sport is... I think that it, it it's great that this is becoming more of a central part of the conversation because even when I was coming up through sport, like the mental side just wasn't even on the table. There was never any discussion around it. And I found it because being positive came naturally to me. And then I had to figure out what I was doing, like how, cause people would ask me like, how are you so positive in these situations that seem really crazy and really hard? And that optimism piece was one that came out for me as well. And how, how do you help others train optimism? So like what advice you give to when you're in these talks to these kids, maybe they objectively know that they should be focused on these good things and not the bad things, but they can't actually make themselves do it. So how do you do that? Well, my limited experience with that, with kids is that you have to present them with the concept to begin with, because so many of them, it never even crosses their minds. And so my wife and I, we started Dark Horse Athletic, which is our sort of our family business. I'm a firefighter by trade, but we started this program largely because I watched my kids' experience in sport, and which, which was largely dictated by the attitudes of the parents around them, the parents and coaches around them. And so we started our program knowing that Parents are pushing kids because they think they have potential to be great and you push them and push them and that takes the fun out of it, which is the reason why a kid would do it in the first place, which makes absolutely no sense. And to a high level competitor, it's so intuitive. And when you see it done wrong, that's, that's why we started the program. So we began to reinforce these kinds of topics that we're speaking about. Positivity, leadership, being supportive of your teammate helping someone to learn something, that's what we reinforced because the world, how does the world operate? Who's number one? We love a champion and we feel sorry for the person who came forth. And, you know, we have very cut and dry 
concepts of what success is and what you would aspire to. And you have things like second is the first loser and this kind of thing. Well, if that were true, why would anyone ever participate in the in the first place? So if you do it for the love of the game, then that's ultimately what youth sport exists for in the first place. It's a health and wellness thing, which also facilitates high level mindset you know, which is, oh, I love this. I want to see what I'm capable of. I'm going to push myself a little bit harder and see what I can do. You know, I might not win this week. Uh, next week, I'll be a little closer. And that's fun. That's part of the fun. That's why you get, you know, people like yourself get so wrapped up to it and focused on it and love being out there and love seeing if you can just move up a little bit. Um, I write, uh, Bonnie Blair talks a lot about personal bests and not being, you know, if you are a world champion in an individual sport, it's a slightly, I only say that because it's slightly complicated from the team aspect and subjectivity comes into it much more. But so here's a, a simple example. If you're a world champion in, in an individual sport, for most of your life, you were not in the top hundred in the world. And it took progress. And it took, as Bonnie Blair says, it's personal bests. You need to get a little bit better relative to yourself before you worry about how you rank compared to the rest of the world. You can't rank well compared to the rest of the world unless you can better yourself. And that's, you know, self-awareness is such a big key component of that and understanding that and growth. That's, you know, growth mindset is something that you will know inherently. Now, you're also very well read and you study this sort of thing and you've I've listened to some great podcasts about that specifically and obsession and and what's a healthy and what's not a healthy obsession and it's a it you can make that a very complicated thing but it's really when it comes down to it I think about a love of it I think yeah and I even think at the highest level it's about that like something that's come up a lot with and I'm sure that you would say the exact same thing is like when you ask a top performer, whether they're a gold medalist in the Olympics or just somebody who's at the top of their sport, like, what is your goal when you get to, when you go to the start line? And of course they want to, you know, win or do, like, that's, that's a given, but their goal, they say, I want to do, or, you know, have a performance that I'm proud of. It's not always about this extrinsic external outcome, but the first goal is an internal goal. And then the, the secondary or, you know, third or tertiary goals might be an external goal. Yeah. I don't know if you picked up on the stuff in my book about Jason Dorland, or if you know who that is. And he, he wrote a book called Chariots and Horses. And this is a funny thing to say, but I'm always so impressed when an athlete, I have an ex, I have a lower expectation when an athlete writes a book or an actor writes a book because they're not an author. Do you know what I mean? I, that, that's, that's selling athletes short, I know, or or actors There's some fixed mindset matter. in there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Well, it's when you've seen as many athletes, an athlete does well and you and people say, come on and speak at this event. They're not necessarily a speaker. Yeah, you have to work an at athlete. it. It's like- You have to work yeah. at it. <laughs> exactly. So Jason's book, Chariots and Horses, is so fantastic. And it's sort of a love story also about how he meets his wife and how his wife, who was a world-class for 15, 16 years, a world-class like 1,500 and 3,000 meter runner. And her attitude was very much like you just described. And it was completely opposite to his, which was if I could literally beat my opponents with my oar, he was an Olympic rower, I would. I want to kill them. 
There's nothing positive about finishing second. There's nothing to be celebrated in losing. You're a failure. And to see the performances that she got when her attitude was completely different, which is I'm completely aware of what I'm doing. I'm going to control everything I have the ability to control and then just see what I'm capable of. That's how you get the greatest performances. I also think that those aren't mutually exclusive because I'm like my husband and I laugh about this because he's also an athlete and I have that hate, like, I don't hate my competitors, but even when I'm out on the trail and I, I know like I'm out on my easy ride and I'm, I'm not going to speed up because somebody's coming <laughs> in the back of my mind. I'm like cussing at them because I hate them so much that they're going to pass me, but I know I'm not going to do anything about it. So like you can have like that fierce, just like, ah, but you can also hold, you know, I think it's like the reminder piece of like, no, no, it's not about this. It's about this. And you can hold both of those at the same time. Yeah. That's interesting because in your sport, that pro that attitude probably served you very well because your sport is about suffering, right? Mine had nothing to do with suffering. It's just, it's a one minute run and you do that. You How well you execute that one minute has nothing to do with what anyone else on the planet is doing. And it's easy. There's only one person on the track at a time in skeleton. So it's easy for me to block any everything out and not worry about what everyone else is doing. Whereas you, you, you're on the podium or you're not based on, is someone else going to pass you? And so that's a fight. That's a struggle. It's a different, it's a different kind of thing. But I, having said that, I've also been on a bike, on a bike path and thought to myself, no, your heart rate's supposed to be at this rate. Just don't, you don't need to teach a commuter a lesson, just stay <laughs> and do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Such an interesting sport, but I want to hear more about skeleton because I think a lot of people listening have never like come into contact maybe even with that sport. So can you tell us what that is? It's a lot of people will look at me, people I've known for many years will say, was it the luge? I forgot. Was it the luge? It's like luge, except it's head first. And it was the name Skelly, I think, is a Norwegian word for sled. I think that's where it where it comes from, but it is originally referred to as a skeleton because the first versions of it were basically, it looked like ribs, like there were cross members and you just lie on top of it and it looked like a skeleton of a bobsleigh. And it's a lot heavier. It's on the same track as a bobsleigh. It's you push it and then dive on. And for that reason, my dad said that's the most Canadian sport in the world because every kid has been on a toboggan or a crazy carpet and dove head first down a hill. And yeah, so it's it has to be on the same track as a bobsleigh because you sprint. So we train a lot like bobsledders do, but we're not as big because we have to be aerodynamic as well. Our body has to be aerodynamic. So you have uh, at 210, I was about as big as any of the competitive field would get because it starts to it starts to work against you at a certain point from an aerodynamic perspective uh, and a few other reasons. But uh, yeah, it's like a luge, except you go head first. So I love this because like this is the opposite of what most people have ever even thought of doing in their lives. Like how did you how did you come to this sport as the sport? <laughs> I, I remember I said I did five sports where I, each time I said, this is the one. And I was a speed skater, uh, moved to Calgary for school, took up speed skating, was provincial champion, did that for five years, like I was saying, but just not still barely inside the top 10 in Canada. So 
is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And then I had a, a classmate who was a bobsled coach and said, you know, why don't you do some training with us? It's sprint training. It probably helps. I was a 500 meter specialist in speed skating. Uh, it'll probably help. So I did that for cross training and then they needed, they needed a guy basically one day. And within a year I was ranked higher in bobsleigh than I was in speed skating. So that's why I made that. Uh, ultimately I, I found skeleton because I live in Calgary and there's a track here and I'm sort of in the community and amongst the same people training and so on. So, uh, the switch from bobsleigh to skeleton was about the finances was about the frustration of being in a sport where you could be a better driver and a better athlete and still not be first at the bottom of the hill because of equipment or who your team was. So that was why I ultimately switched, made that final step to skeleton because for $5,000, I had world-class equipment because it happened to be built by a Calgarian who was supplying all the best teams in the world. And then I knew if I did well, it was because of me. If I did poorly, it was because of something I did. So the learning curve would have been steeper. And it was just at that moment invited back into the Olympic program. So it was a perfect fit in the end. So it sounds like you really like the personal accountability part of your sport. Well, I also like the team aspect, but the reality was that I wasn't getting a fair shake, in my opinion, in bobsleigh. I would say I'm built more for bobsleigh than I was skeleton. I had to sort of lean out a little bit. I was probably 225 as a bobsledder. And, you know, testing wise, driving wise, I would have thought that I could have been recruited to play a stronger role there. But I I was dependent on too many other factors that I were out of my control. And so that was the appeal of going solo in the skeleton side. So can you talk about the fear aspect of this? So in your sport, most people can't even imagine going headfirst down a track. You just mentioned that you're not afraid in these situations. You mentioned that it's more about like being totally focused instead of being totally afraid. So like what tips do you have for people about like fear in their sport or in something that they're doing, or maybe even rephrasing it into something else? Well, it's all relative. I would say two aspects. So Altenburg is probably the most dangerous and scary track in the world. And when I was there for the first time, I watched three people get taken away in an ambulance before it was my turn to go down. The very first time I ever went to that track before I went down for the very first time. And when we were there, you know, the World Cup circuit was there, the best sliders in the world and people crashing and getting hurt. And who was also there? A British Army group doing what they referred to as adventure training. They were learning how to bobsled for the first time on the world's most dangerous track. And I said to a lot of my British competitors were military. And I said, what? That makes no sense. What the hell are these guys learning bobsled in Altenburg? And he said, yeah, they're here on leave from Afghanistan. And I thought, oh, okay. Then if I had to choose between those two, I'd learn to bobsled for the first time on Altenburg if it was between that and, and being shot at, literally being shot at in Afghanistan. So it, is, it has to do with perspective and it has to do with your training and visualization. And the other thing I mention is if you've ever been to a fair, they have that one ride where you stand up 
and it goes in a circle and then it goes vertical and the floor drops away. And when you watch someone do that, you think that's that's crazy. You'll fall. That looks so dangerous. You'll fall out the bottom. But when you're actually doing it, you know, you're stuck to the wall and you're not going anywhere. And that's kind of what skeleton is also. And skeleton is it's going head first, but it's also the thinnest one. A luge puts your backside about six inches off the ice. In skeleton, it's literally two inches. Your chest, your chin, by moving your chin forward, you can touch your helmet to the ice. So you're almost on the ground. There's no distance to fall is one way of putting it. So it's not <laughs> quite as crazy as it looks. It's actually... The, in terms of crashes, it's the least dangerous of the three sliding sports. Just the ground's moving really fast underneath your face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It sounds like, and there's a similarity with mountain biking here because people ask like, oh, aren't you scared going down that trail or that feature? And it sounds like, you know, fear, you're afraid if you're unprepared or, you know, doing something that's way above your skill level, or you feel afraid if you've lost your focus. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Well, and then it's, again, I, I listen to you talk and I think, yeah, that's a perfect example of it's all relative because I'll go down a track, you know, at 135, an inch away from the ice, and I'll look at some of the downhill mountain biking stuff and think, that's nuts. That is absolutely crazy. Or here's another example, aerials, you know, the aerial event in skiing. I know personally, just through my travels, three members of the Canadian aerials team and the woman had previously broken her neck and one of the two guys had previously broken his back and then one guy hadn't. So that ratio makes me think skeleton is not nearly as scary as other things or dangerous as other things could be or downhill skiing. I always use downhill skiing as an analogy because it's very similar to skeleton in terms of if you're skidding as opposed to carving, that's a skiing term you're braking as opposed to changing direction. And that's very much like skeleton. But show me a national team, any nation skier who hasn't had reconstructive knee surgery. I don't know if that exists. Okay. And in skeleton, we're all more or less, <laughs> touch wood, <laughs> we're okay. In one piece. <laughs> more or less in one piece, yeah. yes. So it sounds like there's if you haven't really, you know, worked on the mental side of this sport skeleton, there could be a lot of pressure. And you mentioned there's a lot of mechanics involved, especially because it's an individual sport. And it's like, if you're going to mess up, that's going to mess up your run. So how did you deal with the pressure of, you know, especially at the Olympics <laughs> doing this one minute run and having you knowing that everything has to work out perfectly in this moment for you to achieve your goal? Well, a, a couple of things. Number one is doing it for the love of it. And that's the mindset is just give me the chance, give me the chance and I'll show you and I'm going to show you my best as opposed to, I hope I don't screw this up. So that's a mindset thing. Another aspect is I was 39 years old in uh, Torino. So that was, you know, I remember years ago in, in university studying what they referred to, you know, how you graph arousal level with performance. Does that ring a bell with yep. you? Yeah. The average person listening to this is going, thinking, well, that is so technical. I don't know what you're talking about. But if you, in simple terms, it's how jacked up 
do you need to be to have your best performance? Because if you're not up a little bit, if you're not amped up, if you're not wound up, you don't have your best performance. But there's a point, and for a lot of people, it's at the Olympics, where they're too excited. They're too amped up. And so performance tends to drop off if you're too excited. So that's why it's called the inverted U theory of optimal arousal. You, uh, you, the, the arousal increases, increases, the performance increases, it gets too high and your performance dropped off. It's an inverted U. So my inverted U at 39, having done a million World Cups and you know, understanding, which is something I was reinforced in my life from a very young age was it's just sport. Life isn't going to change too much. I had that mindset going in it for me, because of my age, because of these various components, my inverted you was skewed far to the right. So it was hard for me at the end of my career to get excited for a world cup and have a great race at a world cup because it just didn't hold that thrill anymore. And so when you get to an Olympics, when everyone is maybe too jacked up, I'm right in my good zone. So that's another aspect of it too. And part three, I would say to that was something, a trick that I found worked really well for myself, which was knowing the Olympics was coming. And if I had some butterflies, I had more butterflies, oddly enough, in December and January thinking... I'm three months away. I'm two months away. I'm a month away from the last big race of my career. I feel a little butterflies. Well, these butterflies are nothing compared to what the Olympics are going to be like. So I need to breathe them in and I need to make myself feel them even more and deal with it. And when I invited them in, I found they disappeared. And so that was one way that I found that to be very effective for myself for dealing with butterflies. I tried to make myself, it's almost like you're going to tell a joke and I'm going to be polite and laugh. And if I don't find it funny, it's going to be a real, you know how you, it's a real strain to laugh at something just to be polite when it's not funny. I found when I tried to make myself nervous, it was a real, I couldn't be nervous when I was trying to be nervous. That's kind of a analogy for what I found worked really well for me. So that's a long-winded three-part answer, but I think that's, that's great. My you know, with, with pressure, it's like you said, focusing on this is a chance, like this is a chance for me to give my best. And that's the growth mindset. Then you said having the optimal level of arousal, knowing what that level is for you and knowing that, hey, like at the Olympics at this moment, this is actually exactly what I need. And then number three, you said not dismissing emotions, like the butterflies, the nerves, whatever you want to call it. Because a lot of times... We do just like stuff the emotion and pretend it's not there. But all the research across all different fields say that stuffing the emotion actually is not going to help you perform. And that's exactly what you just described. Yeah, it's not an effective way of dealing with. And that's my, you know, I start off the book by a short story about me telling, in essence, telling a sports psychologist to get lost because I didn't need his help. And that's my bias of what sports psychology was. Oh, you're nervous? I'll give you some breathing exercise. That, that's what it used to be years ago, in, in, that, which is such a superficial way of uh, and biased way of looking at it. But now I, I think of the same thing and I think to myself, are you nervous? Well, you have to acknowledge that you're nervous. And as a coach, I found that to be very effective with one of the, the top athletes that I coached was, you know, Duff, I, I'm, I crashed the last time I was here. I'm really feeling it right now. And my advice was, okay, this is just a training run, but feel it. Don't 
Don't try to not feel it. Feel it, acknowledge it, and then go for your run, which is only 15 minutes away. And then know you can perform when you're feeling it. Because, you know, her preparation was superior. Her driving ability was superior. And she did fantastic. And it was like, okay, what did you learn from that? Okay, the nerves aren't going to affect. If I'm nervous, that doesn't mean I can't also have my best performance. Yeah, okay. I, I think I that's awesome. I just... Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but knowing that I can have these nerves and I will still be able to perform like most, most people don't pick up on that or articulate it that way. Yeah. You know, aerobic capacity had nothing to do with skeleton. And I wonder if that, you know, the nerves serve a purpose, I would say in terms of, you know, a, a physiologist might say in mobilizing free fatty acids for your, you know, preparing for an aerobic uh, activity. So you don't necessarily want to pretend that you don't have nerves. You don't want to get, they serve a purpose. It is a fight or flight kind of a reaction. You want to harness that, not pretend it doesn't exist or make it go away. And the visualization is the other aspect of that, which I would say regulates that. It's you rehearse in your mind again and again and again, exactly what you want to happen, which isn't to say, you know, I hear people say perfect practice makes perfect. I hear that all the time. But in skeleton, there are certain spots where, and in Torino, and I can't remember which corner it was, but in, in, in Torino, that track specifically, it was very, very likely that you would go a little bit late into one specific corner. And so I visualized what I would do if I went late into that corner. And some might say, oh, well, you're visualizing, you know, you're hoping that something wrong happens. No, what you need to do, why I was successful in the Calgary track which is not a track that suits my style personally, but the reason I was successful in the Calgary track was because I had done it 2,000 times. And so if I was off a little bit, if I made a little bit of a mistake, I didn't panic because I had done the correction 400 times or whatever it would be. So I think that if you only practice perfectly, it doesn't, you know, sport is very much about reacting to mistakes and correcting them quickly and and seamlessly, or at least our sport is maybe more than other sports. Yeah. I think that that's such an important point that visualization isn't only visualizing a perfect performance. It's also visualizing what if this comes up or what if that comes up and knowing what you're going to do in that situation. My question for you is that a lot of people start thinking about that thing going wrong and then they start obsessing over the thing going wrong and ruminating and focusing on that. So how do you disassociate with that part. Like I have a plan, but that doesn't mean that this is going to happen and not, not letting that take over your experience. I don't know. I think for, and I suppose this would be a different answer for everyone and depends what your strengths and weaknesses are. But my, my gut reaction or my reaction, the answer for me to that question would be that I have practiced visualization so extensively that it's, I've worked that muscle enough that that won't happen. I've practiced, I know exactly where I'm likely to be late, where I don't want to be late or what, what that is. So I visualize what I'm going to do in that situation. I visualize how I want it to go. I visualize the perfect run. And I also visualizing for us, and this is maybe very specific to skeleton, but visualizing going late into a corner is also helping you to better understand the track because it's understanding the fact that the track wants to nudge you in that corner. If your timing's off here, 
this will happen. So it's helping you to better understand it. And I would say that that, you know, what we do in terms of visualization is probably huge compared to other sports because it's almost all we have in the sense that we have two runs at a World Cup race. It's two runs on a given day. To prepare for that, we have three practice days of two runs. So we practice for six minutes. We're actually doing it for six minutes before the race. So how do you make up for that that gap in training time? You visualize. I like literally hours of visualization every day in preparation for that. So I'm assuming that's more than almost any other sport would be. Maybe skiing would be the equivalent. Bobsleigh and luge would be the equivalent. But you get very good at doing that. And you supplement that by putting your body in the position that you will be in lying on a sled. And you imagine what the sound will be and what the G-force would be doing to your body at different times. So it becomes a very learned, very practiced skill. And so I kind of know what you're referring to because I remember... If I think back, I was a rower for many years and I think back to rowing and I, when you're a new rower, it's like uh, the, the people behind you aren't setting up the boat. So it's off balance. And I have this feeling stuck in my head where the boat won't sit flat. And I could see that messing with you a little bit, but I never had that issue in skeleton and I never, but I never did the visualization to that extent as I did with skeleton or, or anything for that matter, as I did visualizing for skeleton. Yeah. Thanks for describing how you do it. Cause I think that some people think that visualization is just the same thing as thinking about it, but the visualization piece, you're trying to engage as many senses as possible and make it as real as possible. Yes. Yeah. And the, a top skeleton and this, again, this is specific to skeleton, but it might overlap with other things is when I'm visualizing, I'm feeling, or, or let me put it this way, a top slider will feel the changes in pressure within a corner because a corner is not a perfect 15 meter radius all the way around. It'll change slightly. The concrete isn't perfect. The ice isn't perfect. And therefore, if the radius tightens a little bit somewhere around that corner, the pressure increases and the sled will rise. That tells you, or, or vice versa, or it's too short. Maybe you, it doesn't do that, but every corner is unique. And if you are an experienced slider and relaxed and have done your visualization and have been on that track enough, you'll feel the sled rise. Sometimes it's like three or four inches. You'll feel that. And if you feel that, what you're feeling is a product of the geometry of the track. And therefore, you know exactly where you are, which puts you way ahead of someone who doesn't really know where they are, doesn't feel that, and then has to rely on sight as to where is the exit? Okay, do I steer now? When in reality, to look like that, well, now I'm putting different pressure on a different side of the sled. There are repercussions for skeleton above and beyond just relaxing and feeling and knowing exactly where you are, but the, uh, the visualization pays for itself Again and again, it's all about visualization. It's how fast you start, uh, is your equipment competitive, and then what's your feel like for the track because that allows you to steer at exactly the correct moments. Now, you probably have a similar experience going down a hill on a mountain bike or going up on a, a hill on a mountain bike. It's not just, oh, my lungs are tired and I'm pushing with my legs. It's you, when you're going around a corner, you feel the 
you know, more pressure on the front tire than the back tire, or you feel the, the turning, or you have a sense before hitting a specific slope of what gear you should be in. And if you're off by one gear, you know it, you know it in your legs and you know it in, you know, and you have to make those adjustments. So much of that is you either do it innately or you do it by feel, or it's not just, you know, it's vision is such a small part of it, right? Yeah. I love that all of these topics that we're talking about, they're through the the lens of your sport, but these are all things in your book and you have multiple stories of different people in different sports that brings it all together. Something that I also think is interesting along the visualization and also confidence topic is that in a lot of sports or just in life, like you don't know the track, like in, in when I do a hundred mile mountain bike race, like I don't know the track, I don't know what's coming or blind enduro right. racing. Like you don't know. And in life you don't know. So like that's, I think that's where that confidence and self-efficacy piece comes in of like knowing you've done something in the past. So like, where have you used confidence building to, or, or even just thinking about past performances on in life or in sport where you've used that to build your confidence moving forward? Well, it's funny. What pops into my head when you ask that question is the short answer to that would be visualization. If I'm doing a presentation, I did a presentation last week and it was the first one I've done in two years where it was mostly virtual, but I was in front of maybe five people and I was standing up in front of a camera. So there were a lot of nerves there because I haven't been in that environment in a long time. And how do you deal with that? Visualization, practice, practice, practice. But what pops into my head when you ask that question is a lesson that I learned years ago when a buddy of mine, we both used to work. I know this good friend of mine because we both worked at the same fitness facility in Calgary that has a diving tower. And one time it happened to be on his birthday. And he said, for my birthday, I want you to go to the top of the 10 meter tower. And I want you to sit on the edge and then push down with your hands. So your butt is in the air. So nothing is touching the tower except your hands. And then I want you to push yourself off and land in the water. That's what I want to see you do for my birthday. And what a friend it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have you ever jumped off a 10 meter tower? Uh, I don't, or something I've, I've that done, high. I've like dove off a high dive, but I don't know how tall a high dive is. Okay. So a 10 meter, like that's 34 feet or something yeah. like that. And it's like, <laughs> I remember at up. the time thinking <laughs> there's the roof. Like I could almost touch the roof of this whole facility. Yeah. And it was such an eye opening experience because I was like, my heart was just pounding in my chest. And I was thinking, I've done, you know, if you had asked me prior to that, I'd say, I am so good at handling pressure. I was cool as a cucumber, won an Olympic gold medal with millions of people watching me. I had my bet, you know, and then in this performance, like we still laugh at it because there, there's only one person allowed on the tower at a time. And there were little kids going, come on, calling up, going, come on, let's go. And, and it was the old man up there terrified. Uh -huh. And I eventually did it without any problem, but I did it on every level on the way up. And the point is only that if I had done that 20 times and visualized it a thousand times, I could go up and do it without any problem. But for someone to say, okay, go and do it. And by the way, and this is the one thing I, he did that I forgot to mention. He said, by the way, most people who do that will over rotate and land on their stomachs. So that was, you know, front of my mind the whole time. But that was such an eye-opening experience because 
I was terrified at that moment. And so I didn't have time to visualize. I didn't have time to use the strategies that I knew worked. So the point is only that it's not an innate thing. You don't have brave people and chickens. You have people who are prepared and people who are not prepared. So the last question to wrap it up is just the feeling of winning the medal. Like, what was that like for you after so many years, your entire life of going after this goal and then actually getting it through multiple sports and yeah, trials and tribulations? Well, a big part of it was relief, frankly. And there were a few tears. It was a lot of fun. They it It is something that... You know, I knew I would never be in that situation again. I knew that we are four years away from having the Whistler, Vancouver Whistler, but my body was telling me, you know, two years before Torino, my body was telling me, you're, you better wrap it up here. So I knew that wasn't an, an option. I knew it was my last shot. So frankly, having seen, and I know you've seen this too, there are people who have a great deal of difficulty moving on when their career is over. And I was grateful that I couldn't have done better and there was nothing left to achieve and I was happy to be done with it and I was ready to move on to another phase of my life. So a lot of it was gratefulness. Yeah. And it's the uh, that mixed with a lot of fun and enjoying ourselves and knowing we would never be in that situation again. And so what was one thing that was really cool about the skeleton of the men's skeleton event was that it was late at night and it was up in the mountains. So the medal ceremony was actually the next night in Torino and they got limousines to take us down. It was maybe an hour drive away and they had motor. Once we got to the city limits in Torino, the motorcycle police would drive ahead and stop traffic so we could go straight through red lights. And I said to my teammate, it's like, we are rocks. Enjoy this because we're rock stars today. And he said, I'm pretty sure Mick Jagger has to stop for red lights. So we just, we laughed and we, we had a great time and it was, you know, my wife was there and my, I have an older sister that lives in Australia and, and she was in Torino for the time as well. So it was wonderful. It that was fantastic. Amazing. Well, congratulations <laughs> and congratulations on everything you've done since then. I mean, it's amazing to be able to do something, you know, in your life, a goal that you've been working towards, but then to be able to help others with that. And you're helping so many people. And I'm sure that that's almost equally fulfilling. Well, I appreciate that. If the purpose of sport is health and wellness, then we should make sure kids love to do it more than anything else. So I feel really strongly about that. And and when you see it not done that way, it really stands out and you really want to do something. So I've had a lot of support from other Olympians and athletes who get that message inherently because there's no one who gets to a high level of anything who isn't doing something that they love to do. There's no one who gets that level because someone told them to do it or yelled at them to try harder, right? It's you yourself riding by yourself, not part of a training plan because you love to do it or taking shots on your garage door and irritating your neighbors or whatever it is. It comes from a love of the game. So when you see it tried to be set up differently from that, you want to say something. So I've had a lot of support in that, in that message. So but I appreciate that, Sonia. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And where can people find you and your book and your business? Uh, a simple way of doing it is thetowofsport.com. And that gets you to a page on our website. It's darkhorseathletic.ca is the website, but thetowofsport.com might be easier to remember. 
it gets you to the same spot. And then you can learn about the book and you can, there's a link to Amazon and you can learn about our, uh, there's connections, there's my email, there's, you know, Twitter and Facebook links and that sort of thing. All oh, that's the easiest <laughs> that's I just took a minute answering a question where I should have just said the towelsport.com. No, that's good. That'll be in the show notes for everybody <laughs> who's looking for it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoy getting to spend some one-on-one time with you. Thank you, Sonia. Happy to be a part of your podcast. I've enjoyed listening. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to the show. I so appreciate you guys. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there. And if you want to share the show with your friends, that is the best way to help it find others. You can tell them about it. You can rate, review, and subscribe. You can share it on social media. You can forward them my email newsletter. Um, Just getting this information out to people is so powerful. And I know for me personally, I love podcasts because it is one of the best ways that I learn new information. And I'm always appreciative when I get to hear about podcasts that other people are listening to. I hope you guys have an amazing weekend and I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you next week.